Well, about a year ago, I was living in Indiana, and my daughter came home, and she was really excited to share about what she learned at school that day. She's like, hey, this is what I learned. Today, I learned that facts are things that you can test and prove with science, and opinions are things that you can't prove. I remember hearing that and thinking, nah, I'm pretty sure that's not right. That sounds pretty dumb to me. So I asked her, I said, well, what about that statement you just made? Is that a fact or an opinion? Because you can't really test it very much. And she, this look on her face was uh, pretty priceless. She actually loved it. And she's like, oh, tell me more, more things that are, you know, curious like that. And, well, we went down a rabbit hole of things that are true, but you can't test. But our world that we live in struggles with this idea of objective right, objective wrong, the fact that there is truth outside of what you can do in a lab. There is truth out there. Because if we relegate truth to just the, the, the realm of the sciences and kind of the hard sciences even, well, that's pretty foolish because it throws out philosophy, history, and even a lot of how we operate on a daily basis, does it not? Love becomes nothing more than an opinion. You can't test and prove love. Sure, you can observe things about it, but you can't prove that there is this thing called love. So we live in this world that struggles with the idea of objective right and wrong. Objective right and wrong. And the war in Ukraine has added an interesting wrinkle to all of this. Because all of a sudden you had a lot of people that have rejected right and wrong that look at what's happening in Ukraine and say, well, actually, I think maybe there are some objective rights and wrongs in this world. But then they don't have a language to be able to describe what they're seeing or to know why they actually feel the way that they do. Because all of us, deep down inside, there is a sense of right and wrong that we even apply to the world around us and we expect others to follow it, no matter how much we give lip service to the idea that there is not right and wrong. But ultimately, we're left to wonder, where does this right and wrong come from? And this is the world that we live in. And it's easy to talk about the world out there, right? And say, oh, they, don't, they struggle with right and wrong. You know, they're so frustrating. It's easy. I don't want to talk about out there today. I want to talk about in here and in our hearts and in this room and our own struggle with right and wrong and with what God has said. I hope we can take an honest look at our own hearts this morning. After all, we believe in right and wrong, do we not? We should be the first people to say, hey, can you tell me what's right and wrong in my life? Can you tell me where I've kind of gone astray? Because we, we don't like to be confronted. We don't want people to say, hey, this thing in your life, I think, you know, you maybe need to check yourself on that. How do you respond when somebody confronts you with something? When someone points at something in your life and says, I'm not so sure about this. How do you feel when that happens? We like to say live and let live. We don't like to be confronted, but I think as Christians, we are called to be a people who receive correction, receive correction. Now, we've been in this series, Patient Pursuit. We've been looking at how God patiently pursues a wayward people. And we've talked a lot about God's patience. We've talked a lot about his goodness. I mean, last week we examined the idea of how God is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We looked at that. 
Today's going to be a little bit harder. Today we're going to be looking at our own hearts and asking the harder questions of ourselves, of how we have been wrong, how we have rebelled against God. And we don't go here as an accusation and trying to bring us down, but ultimately we go here so that we will turn to the Lord and actually see his goodness in the midst of our sin. I hope today, as we read the story, we'll be asking the question, how are we like Ahab? How am I like Ahab? And how ought I respond to the evil and wickedness that I find in my own life, in my own heart? That's where we're going today. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Father, give us soft hearts. Help us to receive truth. Help me to be clear and to be bold with what you have said. The Lord, we turn to you and your mercy. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, there's four main thrusts of our passage today. Let me give you the first one before we even open up the text, and it's this. Sin is moving away from what God wants and toward what we want. Sin is moving away from what God wants and toward what we want. All right, so we're putting it out there on the table already. We're going to talk about sin today. This idea of rebelling against God. The idea of saying, God, I don't want what you want, but I see what I want over here, and that's where I'm going. So sin is moving away from what God wants and toward what we want. Now, I'm not offering this up as kind of a really sophisticated theological definition of what sin is. Okay, so I just want to be upfront with that. But I do think that this is how the scripture today is describing sin and where our mind ought to go. So sin is moving away from God, what God wants, and toward what we want. What we want, excuse me. Making ourselves king, in essence. All right, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 1 today. Continuing on, we skipped over chapter 20 because Elijah doesn't really show up in there, Um, but we're in chapter 21. Now, Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So remember, Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, Yahweh forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. All right, let's pause here for a minute and kind of dive into what Ahab is doing because there's a lot going on here. Because he seems at first, he's like, he's making this reasonable offer to Naboth, and Naboth says no. But what's, what's actually happening here? Is Naboth just being stubborn? Is Ahab doing something reasonable? And ultimately, the answer to that is no. Nahab, or Ahab, Nahab, sorry, Ahab, he's not just trying to buy something. Of imagery here that the author includes points us to the fact that Ahab is doing something actually wicked. First off, he wants to make a vegetable garden out of a vineyard. Now you look at that and like, what's what's the deal with that? Well, this has to do with the language of the promised land. Not that making a vegetable garden in and of itself was bad, but the fact is is that the promised land is often described as a vineyard, the vineyard of the Lord, something the Lord gave His people. Vegetable garden. That word is used once in all of Scripture, and you know where it's used, what it's used to describe? Egypt. 
In Deuteronomy 11.10, Egypt is described as a place of vegetable gardens. So Ahab here is saying, I want to take this vineyard and make it into a vegetable garden. So there's a lot of metaphorical imagery here that Ahab excuse me, is saying that he wants to go away from the Lord. Not only that, he wants to take the inheritance away from Naboth. And this inheritance is a big idea because all of the people of Israel were given an inheritance of land. And that land was kept in your family. And it was so important that you couldn't actually lose your inheritance. Even if you sold it, you had the opportunity to always get it back. You see even that in the book of Ruth, this idea of the Redeemer. We would redeem the land. It would go back to where it belonged. Ahab here wants to take the vineyard, this promised land from Naboth, and make it into Egypt. Make it into a place that doesn't recognize the Lord. So Ahab is going to his own desires and away from what the Lord wants. Now also, why is he doing this? Why is Ahab looking to make this vegetable garden in the first place? Well, in the chapter previous, Ahab failed to kill the king of Syria like he ought to have uh, done. And a prophet comes and condemns him. And he's like, hey, you should have killed this guy. And he rebukes him. And Ahab is sad because of that. That's why he's going about and do this. It says previously that uh, in verse 43, and the king of Israel went to his house of chapter 20, excuse me, went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. So we have this idea. He's already sad and he's like, oh, I know what's going to cheer me up. I'm going to take this vineyard and I'm going to make it into a vegetable garden. And he's doing all this because he wants to forget about Yahweh. He's like, get rid of the Lord. I don't want to have anything to do with him. All he ever does to me is nag me and have me do things I don't want to do. So that's what Ahab is doing. He's moving away from what God wants and toward what he wants. Now, I've said this many times before when we talk about idolatry and sin, specifically thinking through what, what, what do we, idols are the things that we sin when we don't get it or that we sin to get it. So Ahab is now sinning because he hasn't gotten what he wants. He's moping, basically, and saying, oh, woe is me. I can't even get this vineyard. Now we're going to turn our attention to Jezebel and how she's going to sin to get something. So Ahab sinned when he didn't get something, and Jezebel, she is going to sin to get this vineyard for Ahab. All right, picking up in verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. 
Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. So Ahab who proves himself to be impotent and incompetent, can't get anything done. That's part of his narrative arc through all of 1 Kings. He can't do jack. Jezebel's like, I'll take care of it. And she writes some letters, and next thing we know, Naboth is dead. He's been falsely accused of cursing God and the king. And the irony of it all is that Ahab is actually the one who has cursed God and abused his authority by punishing Naboth for something that he did not do. And also, the text says that he takes that Ahab is to go take possession. Again, this idea of Israel entering the promised land and taking possession of it. So Ahab goes and he takes possession of this vineyard. And all the while, doing all of these things in a wicked and terrible way. Now, I want to ask the question, what do we learn about sin through Ahab's behavior? What do we learn about sin? So this is still all under the first point. We've got five different things about sin that we see through what he's doing. The first thing we see that's very similar to kind of the main point in general is that sin pursues its own ends. Ahab is led by what he wants. He's not thinking about, okay, what do other people need or want, and maybe this vineyard should be kept in Naboth's family. No, he's just thinking about, what do I want? What's the end goal, and I'm going to go after it? He has a complete lack of love of neighbor and love of God. He is wrapped up in his own world, seeing what he wants and going after it. That's what sin does. Secondly, sin subverts justice instead of upholding justice. This was a travesty of justice. The king is the one who's supposed to rule and make right judgments. That was a big, big role of the king, right? People would bring their problems to the king, and the king would say, this is right, this is wrong, let's do justice. And Ahab is doing the exact opposite of that. He's having an innocent man accused and murdered. Instead of upholding the law and bringing justice, Ahab, driven by his sin, commits injustice. So sin subverts justice instead of upholding justice. Thirdly, sin thinks that God doesn't see. There is no mention of the Lord and of his purposes in this little dialogue between Ahab and Jezebel and the elders of the city. Nothing. He doesn't get mentioned once. Who mentions the Lord? Naboth. Sin thinks that God doesn't see it. It's not paying attention. That's what we do when we sin. When we sin, we're basically saying God doesn't care. It doesn't matter. I'm going to do my own thing. Fourthly, sin hardens our hearts and leads to more sin. So Ahab wanted the vineyard, that was sinful to begin with, wanted to make it into a vegetable garden, and his heart is hardened to the point of murder, where he doesn't even care that this guy gets killed. His heart is hardened. Sin leads to more sin. We see that in our own lives. Once you you do a sin, you're kind of more inclined to either do it again or do something else to kind of cover up that sin. Sin leads to more sin. And fifth, sin fools us into thinking we are in control. 
while back, my kids were doing something at the dinner table. I don't even remember what the, what the start of this argument was. But uh, they started saying, I'm the boss. No, I'm the boss. No, I'm the boss. No, I'm the boss. I'm kidding you not. This went on for like a few minutes. And I just kind of sat there and watched. Even to the point where the third-year-old, the three-year-old spoke up. I'm the boss. And it's like, okay, you're definitely not the boss. Or maybe you're the boss over all this because, you know, you throw tantrums and everything. Well, I watched this for a while. And I just kind of laughed because I'm like, none of you have paid a bill in your life. You are not the boss. Eventually, I got tired of it and I said, nope, I'm the boss. And they stopped. So... But sin fools us into thinking we're the boss, right? We're like, oh yeah, I'm in control. I can do whatever I want. I mean, Jezebel, she's like, Ahab, are you not king? You can do whatever you want. Now, none of us are kings, but we tend to fall into that trap of, I'm free. I can do what I want. Sin fools us into thinking we're in control. So overall, sin is moving away from what God wants and toward what we want. Where are you moving toward what you want as opposed to what God wants? Are you more concerned with your own ends or are you concerned with the justice that God would have for our world? Do you think that God won't see or are you constantly thinking and remembering that God is with you and he is present? Not looking at you, oh, what are you going to do now? But the fact that he's there and he cares. Now, I reached out to several of you in the congregation this week and asked, what are some specific sins in our community and in our church? So what I'm going to share are not things that Pastor Mark has kind of thought up on his own. It's things that you guys have thought up, so you know, it's your fault. But uh, <laughs> I noticed that uh, I got some great responses. So I really appreciate those of you who were able to get back with me. And it kind of came into three big categories. And there were some other ones out there too, uh, but I, I don't have time to go through all of it. But there are three big ones. The first one was materialism. And you don't have to be rich to fall to prey to materialism. Materialism is the idea that I'm just seeking after, whether it be money or stuff, the things of this world, materialism. And that leads to coveting. You see what the people around you have, and you're like, oh, I want that. And I'll do anything to get it. Kind of brings in, the, brings in this keeping up with the Joneses. My neighbors have it, I gotta have it too. And also a lack of generosity and trust. And I don't mean that we don't necessarily give, but do we give faithfully and sacrificially? Because we're so wrapped up in our stuff. The second thing was that we tend to hide our sin. We have this veneer that we want to put on. We don't want to confess our brokenness. And this leads to us judging by our appearances. That we look at the world around us and we determine, okay, what I can see is the end-all, be-all of all things. If someone's looking this particular way, that's indicative of what's going on in their heart, and I'm superior to them. I see that in my own life. And the last thing was kind of an arrogance about our accomplishments. We look at kind of the way that there's a good culture here of, of work ethic and working long hours. We're also blessed with incredibly good soil. And we look at those things and we think, oh, look at what we've done. Instead of turning to the Lord and saying, Lord, thank you for the blessings of the family that I was brought up in that gave me these values. And thank you for this physical place that I live in and that you have ordained in your goodness that I am here. And we tend to pat ourselves on the back and we have an arrogance about us. I see all these things in my own life. 
I tend to take credit for things that have happened to me that really I had no, no part in. I was just blessed by the Lord to have. I'm, I become obsessed with money and stuff. I tend to think that what I see is all there is and I'm a level above other people. I see all of these things in my own heart. So I don't point the finger at anybody this morning. I point it at myself and say that these are things I deal with. These are things I deal with. Now, the question is, how does God respond to our sin? Because this passage cries out for justice, does it not? We've been walking with Ahab for a while, and we've been seeing his wickedness, and this is the lowest of the low. This is the low point in, in Ahab's life. And we're like, Lord, will you ever bring judgment and justice on this guy? Here he is murdering someone who wanted to just continue to have what God had given him. Rightly have, I might say. He shouldn't have given up the land. How does God respond to this? Here's the second point. God responds to sin with anger and justice. Anger and justice. This is both a, an emotional response, anger. He feels a particular way, and he acts justice. He responds to sin with anger and justice. Let's see in the text where we see this. Verse 17. Then the word of Yahweh came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says Yahweh, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. For the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, Yahweh also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. I mean, I would say this is probably the harshest and strongest language I have yet to read up front here at Christ Community. This is a strong response from the Lord. But it's also good. The psalmists often cry out, How long, O Lord, will the wicked prosper? And here we see God is acting. And he has two primary responses. One, he's going to utterly destroy Ahab's house. I'm not talking about his physical house. I'm talking about his heirs. And that's a big deal. In the ancient world, having heirs was important, especially if you were a monarchy. And the previous dynasties, they got completely wiped out. They're mentioned here, Jeroboam and Baasha, those two dynasties. And they're disgraced when they are wiped out. It shows no favor from the Lord. So he's going to utterly destroy them. And then secondly, I mentioned this, God will disgrace Ahab. Dogs will lick up his blood. Dogs will eat the body of Jezebel. 
dogs, remember, unclean, nasty animals back in that day. They're not our fluffy, loyal companions we have now. But people would look at them and say, I want nothing to do with a dog. And if you were to be, have your blood licked up by a dog or your body eaten by a dog, that is great shame. Because you didn't have a proper burial. It means that nobody was there to honor you. Nobody cared. And this is what God says will happen to Ahab because of his sin. So how does God view sin? He hates it. It disgusts him. He is repulsed by it. He is angered by it. He destroys it. That is the end of all sin. There is justice. We sit here. We say, yay, God, you deal with sin. But also, how does he feel towards ours? Because the truth is, that little sin in your life is not little. There is no such thing as little sin. It may feel little. It may feel like the consequences are inconsequential. But they are not. It draws you away from the perfect and holy God that we are meant to be with. It's deserving of his wrath. His anger towards our sin is far greater than we can imagine. It's like playing with a baby tiger. Playing baby tiger, it's like, oh, it's cute. I really like this. It's soft and fuzzy. That thing, it's a tiger. It grows up. Don't play with a tiger even if you think it's in a cage. It's a bad idea. Don't play with your sin. Now, it's unpopular to talk about sin. And honestly, it's hard to stand up before you. It's like, I don't want to talk about sin and terrible things. I want to be the pastor that everybody likes. I want to be the guy that speaks about grace and mercy and God's goodness. But we have to spend time here. We have to talk about it because it's true. And the scriptures lay out sin in all its gory detail. Instead of running away, we need to dwell on it. That's how we grow. Tim Keller has a famous quote. He says, We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. But also, going back to our point, God responds to sin with anger and justice. This now leads us to the question, how do we respond when people confront us with our sin? How do you think Ahab is going to respond to this? Ahab, the knucklehead of all knuckleheads, the biggest sinner of them all, the worst king there ever was, how will he respond? Verse 25, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of Yahweh like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So get this editorial comment saying Ahab is the worst of the worst. And we get the, the mention of the Amorites, the Canaanites who lived in the land that Israel was supposed to drive out and saying Ahab was like them. Worst of the worst. Worst of the worst. Verse 27. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. Holy cow. Ahab actually responds. He humbles himself. It's interesting. There was an HR department of a business that was trying to train their employees on how to give good feedback. You know, whenever you have your annual reviews, that can be a hard time because a lot of times we don't like being told where we can grow and where we need to change. 
So this company spent a lot of time training their people on how to give good feedback. You know, how to say it in an encouraging way, say it in a way that was well-received. But nothing changed. People still struggled in those review appointments, and nothing really good ever came of it. Well, then they shifted their focus from teaching how to give good feedback to how to receive feedback. And that's when things changed. They realized the problem wasn't in how the feedback was delivered, although there are better ways you can deliver it than others. It was in the people receiving the feedback. What was their heart? And here we have a picture of Ahab actually receiving rebuke, a harsh rebuke. I mean, look at what Elijah says. Nobody wants to hear what, Eli- or what Ahab has heard. So here's our third point. It's going to be a three-parter. When confronted with your sin, there's going to be three things to do. And Ahab models, ironically, models this for us because he doesn't actually do all of them. But the first one is to receive rebuke. When confronted with your sin, receive rebuke. You need to welcome feedback. There's a phrase I've always heard, uh, have thick skin but a soft heart. So don't let it get to you, but receive what's said. Let it penetrate into your heart. I guess the analogy breaks down a little bit. Don't let it bother you, but receive it. Have a tender heart that says, yes, I want to grow. Receive it. That doesn't mean that you always have to agree with what somebody says. But do you have a heart that's willing to say, I bet that because I'm a sinner, something in what they are saying is probably true. Having that be my lead foot, saying, you know what, they're probably right, because, again, sin deceives. It makes me think I'm in control. It makes me think everything is awesome. And maybe this person outside has seen something in me. So receive rebuke. Secondly, take sin seriously. Take sin seriously. Ahab does this. He weeps and he mourns. Now, I'm not talking about feeling sorry for yourself in that type of seriousness, but seeing sin the way God sees it. God sees sin as seriously, as serious. And throughout the scriptures, we see people when they're confronted with sin or things are ter- terrible are happening, they put on sackcloth and ashes. They're saying, this is bad. Sin is bad. Not, ah, that's no big deal. Take it seriously. I think a good way you can practice this in life, when somebody confesses and apologizes to you, don't say, oh, it's no big deal. Instead, say, I forgive you. You're good with me. Something like that. But don't just dismiss it. Take sin seriously. In your own life, weep and mourn. And thirdly, this is what Ahab does not do. He doesn't really reflect on sin. This is the third one. Reflect on your sin. Now, what do I mean by that? Again, we don't want to dwell in our sin in the sense of, oh, let me just uh, embrace it. No, don't embrace it or, or kind of that typing of dwelling. What I mean is sit in the weeds. Look at the weeds and understand that, yes, they are there. So if I'm going to pull them out, I need to get down to the roots. I need to ascertain what's actually going on. I don't just stand and spray it with Roundup and then the weed come back, or I don't just kind of try to yank them out as quick as I can, but I get down into the roots and pull them out that way, and that requires time. And I have to sit and think, where do these roots actually go? Where do they actually go? I have to understand. So if I'm struggling with pornography or an eating disorder, I can't just say, i got to stop it! Although, yes, we do want to stop it. But where are those things coming from? What's going on in my heart that's leading me to do those things? David has an example of what he does when he's confronted. Remember, David had a guy murdered too because he wanted to get something. There is a sick parallel between Ahab and David. But the difference is what happens afterwards. Ahab's repentance is only skin deep. 
David's repentance was wholehearted. And God honors and keeps his dynasty going because of David's repentance. David's example is found in Psalm 51. Ahab's repentance was not complete. It was not full. In the next chapter, we say Ahab is back to his old ways. He still doesn't want anything to do with Yahweh. So here we get this glimpse of repentance, but it's so fleeting. May that not be our heart. May we not have the heart of, I'm sorry I got caught. But, oh Lord, help me to be different. Help me to change. So our third point, again, when confronted with your sin, receive rebuke, take sin seriously, and reflect on your sin. Now let's keep going and see God's response. God's response to Ahab, the worst of the worst. Verse 28. And the word of Yahweh came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. Wow. The Lord delays justice because of skin-deep repentance. So here's our fourth point. God responds with mercy. God responds with mercy. Why have I spent so much time talking about this sin? It's because when we understand the depth of our sin, it helps us to understand the depth of God's mercy, the width of God's mercy, the height of God's mercy, the gloriousness of God's mercy. Now, God responds to Ahab, and it leads us to the question, does God change? Well, no, God cannot change. He is immutable. That's a fancy theological term for it. He doesn't change. Immutable. But what does change is the circumstances. And then God rightly responds to whatever circumstances are in front of him. Remember last week we talked about Moses interceding on behalf of the people who rebelled against God. They had made this golden calf. And God says, I'm not going to destroy them. Instead, I will stay with them. Because God rightly responded to Moses' prayer. So here God responds to Ahab. So if God responded to, to someone who's whose repentance was skin deep, how would he respond to those of us who are in Christ? And our repentance is wholehearted. So there's a fourth step. It kind of fits in with the third point, but it's under here under the fourth point. But here's the fourth step. You know, we talked about receiving rebuke, taking it seriously, reflecting on our sin. Here's the first, fourth one. It's a sneaky fourth one. Turn to God and embrace his mercy. Embrace his mercy, say, Lord, yes, thank you for your forgiveness. Don't just dwell in your sin, but say, Lord, thank you that you have forgiven me. Because all of our sins, past, present, and future, the wrath of God has been poured out on Christ on the cross. There is no more wrath left for us. It is poured out on Christ. So we turn to, to the Lord and we embrace his mercy. We embrace his mercy. So when we see our sin, we humble ourselves before the Lord and we can know that he has mercy on us because it's been paid for. So acknowledge your sin, receive the feedback, take it seriously, reflect on it, and then trust in God's mercy. Because you can't earn his favor, you already have it as a child of God. Here's a response statement that I have for us today. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I think that's where this passage is driving us. It's one we celebrate that God deals with sin justly. But at the same time, it causes us to ask the question, well, I'm a sinner, so God's going to respond to me in a particular way. So Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, I've walked through this passage because I want us to take a good, hard look at our own lives. I want us to acknowledge our sin because in order to grow, we need to acknowledge our sin. We can't pretend everything is okay. We can't. We have to confess our brokenness time and time again. To understand God's mercy and the depth of his patience as he pursues us, we've got to understand our sin. Let me read the full Tim Keller quote to you guys. The one I, I gave half of it to you early, or earlier. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Hmm. May we say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are a just God and you deal with sin. And we thank you that you have dealt with our sin on the cross. We thank you that we can turn to you and ask for your forgiveness. Father, have mercy on us. Help us to see our sin and help us to turn to you, confessing our sin, not trying to earn forgiveness, but acknowledging the forgiveness that you have bought for us on the cross. We praise you and we thank you that you are indeed good. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.